0: Thank you for listening to this podcast. The Ville Church provides all its resources for free. If you have been blessed by this ministry, please consider giving financially. For more information on how to give and other resources, please visit www.theville.church. On Memorial Day, we solemnly celebrate or remember the sacrifice of those who died while serving in our armed forces to protect our way of life here in America. Memorial Day was first observed in the U.S. just after the Civil War, and it was known as Decoration Day, um, where the graves of fallen soldiers were decorated with flowers and other items uh, for, for honor and remembrance. And then in 1971, the Congress declared Memorial Day to be a, a national holiday, officially placing it on the final Monday in May. And this week, 900 soldiers from the U.S. Army Regiment known as the Old Guard placed uh, 228,000 flags at the graves in in Arlington National Cemetery. This is their annual tradition. An Illinois senator, Tammy Duckworth, a U.S. Army veteran of Asian American descent shared why she served in their armed forces. And part of her service, she lost both of her legs. And this is what she shared. She said, one day, our nation's flag will drape my coffin, as it, ha- as it did my dad's, and it will my husband and brothers. I will always stand on these legs for the flag and the anthem. But it is also my honor to defend people's right to free speech, including, including those who choose to take a knee to express outrage at the glaring disparity in how Americans of different races are treated. As I think as we observe this weekend and enjoy a day off, let's give thanks for the sacrifices of others that they have sacrificed for us and at the same time commit ourselves to making sacrifices for others so we all can live in a land that is truly free. And equal for all. In preparing today's message and to speak with you, I thought, have you ever had times in your life where someone says something and just catches you off guard? Like, whoa, where'd that come from? Or that was such a profound truth, I didn't expect it to come from you or this person or something. Well, Jesus had many of those in his lifetime. He put truth out there and it caught people off guard. An example of that, um, I read a book some years ago called Same Kind of Different as Me. If you haven't read, I would highly recommend it. It's a book about the relationship between two men that couldn't have been more different in their lives. One was a a well-established art dealer in Texas, and the other was a homeless man from Louisiana. And Through God's providence, they met and got to know each other and became friends and even became brothers. And, uh, but they were so different, they didn't feel like they had anything in common. Uh, but a, their relationship developed. The, the homeless man was illiterate, never learned to read or write, grew up as a sharecropper. The art dealer had several degrees, was very well off financially. But God brought them together, and they became brothers. Uh, but in one incident, they were sitting down to have coffee. And the, um, as they sat down, the art dealer laid his keys on the table. He had keys for his houses, his cars, his boats, his trucks. Whatever he had, he had keys for it. And the homeless man picked it up. I don't think he'd ever seen that many keys in his life. And he looks at him, he said, do you own something for all these keys? And before the art dealer could respond, the homeless man said, or do these things own you? And that moment for that art dealer, he said, opened his eyes to a reality he had never thought of. Are these things really owning me? Do I live my life for these things? And it was like he he said, I never thought that this homeless man could really teach me much. But in that moment, he taught me to reevaluate my life and what I was living for. So this morning, I'd like to look at a passage of scripture where Jesus threw truth out, continues to throw truth out, and challenges us in ways in our lives that we need to think, what am I living for? If you have your Bibles or your phones and want to look with me, we're going to be looking in Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 to 12. Very familiar passage of scripture. We know it as the Beatitudes. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and taught them, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven for so they persecute the prophets who were before you I'd like to go through each of these uh, statements of truth and look at them and see how do we apply them to our lives he starts off by saying blessed are the poor in spirit blessed are the poor in our society, in our, le- in our world today, would we say, blessed are you, you are poor. Blessed are you. Uh, I, many times we don't see that as a blessing. But what does it mean to be poor? What does it mean? According to the book, When Helping Hurts, middle to upper class Americans, we view poor as in a materialistic way. People are poor if they lack material things such as food, money, clean water, medicine, education, healthcare, these are marks of being poor and we say you're poor because you don't have these things and while that is true, those who are poor see themselves differently. They describe their condition in more psychological and social terms. They talk of terms of shame, inferiority, powerlessness, humiliation, fear, hopelessness, depression, social isolation and voiceless being voiceless and similar to the rest of the world there's in the in the u.s among the poor in the u.s there is a loss of meaning purpose and hope that plays a major role in how they see themselves this is poor as we think of poor but what does it mean to be poor in spirit because he said blessed are the poor in spirit In the book, Walking with the Poor, the author, Bryant Myers, reminds us that that in the Bible, we know that God is a relational being, existing in a three-in-one form from all of eternity. We call this the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Also, we know in the Bible that we are created in God's image. So that means we are relational as well. God created us for relationships. Before the fall, before sin entered the world, as we read in the book of Genesis, Meyer says God established four basic foundational relationships for each of us. First, a relationship with God. Then a relationship with ourselves, a relationship with others, and a relationship with the rest of creation. A relationship with God is, is our primary relationship. God created us to relate to Him, to know Him. And the other three relationships flow from this one, If we know God, it shapes how we relate to the others. In the Westminster Shorter Catechism, which was written in 1646 and forty-seven, they say our calling in life is this, to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That's why we're here. We're here to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. The ultimate reason we were created then is to serve and give praise to our Creator through our thoughts, words, and actions. That's why we're here. God created us to reflect Him to the world. When we do this, we experience God as as our Heavenly Father, and we live in a joyful, intimate relationship with Him as His children. So our primary relationship is our relationship with God. And then from that, we have a relationship with ourselves. We see ourselves differently. We realize because we are created in God's image, We all have inherent worth and dignity, all of us. I'm creating God's image. I have worth just based on that. We are not God by no stretch of the imagination, but we have the high calling of reflecting Him to the rest of creation, being created in His image. And this makes us superior to the rest of creation. Not superior in any way to one another, but superior to the rest of creation. And then we have the relationship with others. God didn't create us to live alone. Rather, He created us to know one another, to love one another, to encourage one another, to use the gifts He's given each of us to fulfill our callings. We are built for relationships. We need relationships. And then, finally, the relationship with the rest of creation. In Genesis 1, 28 to 30, God gave us the mandate to be stewards, not owners, but stewards of His created world. We are to understand, protect, subdue, and manage His world in order to preserve and produce bounty. God calls us as humans to interact with creation, to make possibilities, realities, and to be able to sustain ourselves via the fruits of our stewardship. As you can see on the screen, it shows how these relationships work together. But then, and if you read the scriptures in Genesis chapter 3, sin entered the world. If you know the story, uh, Eve was tempted shared the fruit with Adam which God forbid and sent into the picture and then everything changed everything changed all relationships were broken intimacy with God was replaced with fear we feared God instead of wanting to be with him relationships with ourselves was marred and Adam and Eve developed a sense of shame of their humanness they were ashamed first time in their lives they felt shame their relationship with each other was broken if you remember the story, Adam was quick to blame Eve. It's your fault. We're in this situation. She sinned. And then the relationship with the rest of creation became distorted because, as God, we know he cursed the ground, said, you will sweat to make a living. And then the women in childbearing, it became very painful, very difficult. In his book, Meyer defines poverty as follows. Poverty, is said, is the result of relationships that do not work, that are not just, that are not for life, that are not harmonious or enjoyable. Poverty is the absence of shalom in all its meanings, and shalom is the word, the Hebrew word we translate peace, but it's more than just a absence of conflict. It's a wholeness of life, and it says because of our broken relationships we do not experience this wholeness of life, and because of our uh, uh, poverty, of our spiritual limits with God, we we deny God's existence. Okay. And we worship other false gods and spirits. Because of our lack of intimacy with God, it leads us to a poverty of being. We see ourselves as either we're the saviors of the world, we we, we have all the answers, or we have no answers at all. We have such low self-esteem, we have no value. We also have experienced a poverty of community because of this sin problem we have. Where we are self-centered and we exploit and abuse others rather than loving and caring for them. And finally, we interact with the rest of creation from a part poverty of stewardship, resulting in a loss of sense of purpose, either experienced, we see it in a form of laziness or on the opposite side of being workaholics. We're very materialistic, and as we said, the ground is cursed because of it. So as I look at this and think of this, I think being poor in spirit means I live in the reality that we are broken and helpless on account of our sin in our lives. And we acknowledge that we are completely dependent on God. I cannot fix myself. It is impossible. I'm broken beyond my ability to repair myself. And this state of helplessness and destitution leads me to seek help elsewhere. and hopefully will lead me to God, to a relationship with God. And in this condition, when we are, we do run to God. This is why we are, Jesus says, I believe, blessed are the poor in spirit. Because they see their need. It's so great that the only place they can run is to God. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Then he follows that by he says, blessed are those who mourn. When we realize the depths of our brokenness and our sinfulness and our separation from God and our, our, the pain we cause ourselves and others... The only proper response is to mourn. Mourning is uh, is caused by recognition of sin and its consequences and is associated with repentance. We mourn over sins, our sins and the sins of our society. It affects us deeply. In the Bible, when Isaiah saw the Lord in Isaiah 6, he cried out. He saw also his sinfulness and he cried out, Woe to me! I am ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. He saw he was so sinful in his life. But God sees this grief. He didn't leave us. It says, blessed are those who mourn because they will be comforted. And he responds with comfort. He says, I have a plan for you. David in Psalm 51 declares, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, Oh God, you will not despise. If we come to God, see in our brokenness, see in our poverty of spirit, mourning and saying, God, I am broken. He responds to us. And in this position of mourning, we approach God in meekness. We don't come with arrogance or selfishness or, or assertiveness. We come very broken and very humble to God. We are meek. Blessed are the meek. The meek humbly and gratefully place all their lives under God's complete control, knowing they are not created or able to live life apart from Him. And God rewards them. God says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. He is planning a future earth that He says, this I will give to those who are meek, who come to me humbly, realizing their brokenness, mourning over that. I will give them the future earth. Because He knows He can trust them. Not to spoil it with their selfish appetites. And then, being meek, being humble, being broken, it says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. We look for righteousness. We say we have no righteousness within ourselves. Where do we find it? Broken and repentant, we humbly come to God for His righteousness, knowing that we have no righteousness within ourselves. We are desperate for God's righteousness Like someone in a desert is desperate for food and water. Our lives depend on it. In Psalm 42, 1, it says, As the deer pants for the water, flowing streams, so my soul pants for you, O God. We cannot live life without Him. We realize that. We desire God's righteousness, knowing it is only in Him that we will find life. We realize life doesn't exist apart from God. And God does not disappoint us. It says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. In De- 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 Deuteronomy four twenty nine, 29, it says, but from he- there you will seek the Lord your God and you will find him. If you search after him with all your heart, with all your soul. And, and then Jesus says of himself in John 6, 35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall... Never thirst. God sees us, our seeking after hunger and hungering after his righteousness, and he meets us there in his mercy. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. And once we experience his mercy in our lives, resulting from our hunger and thirsting for righteousness, we then can show mercy to others. Blessed are those who are merciful because they have experienced mercy from God. We can show mercy. To others, in John four nineteen, it says, "We love because He first loved us. Love did not originate with us; it came from God." And many times in our seeking righteousness, we can be felt overwhelmed that we will never get there. It's true; on our own, we'll never get there. We'll never be acceptable to God in our own because of our sinfulness. But God tells us in Romans, "Where sin abounds, grace abounds the more." So when God, when our sin meets God's grace, we're overwhelmed by the mercy He shows to us because we realize we don't deserve it. And then we are blessed because we can pass that mercy on to others. Mercy implies the ability to enter into another's world with all its misery, to feel for that person and to act to help alleviate their problems. The story of the Good Samaritan in Luke 10 is an example of showing mercy. When he cared for the man left for dead by the robbers, without regard for his own safety or convenience, he was merciful to him. But many times we show mercy out of a sense of, I don't know, guilt or something. We feel like we have to be merciful and it doesn't come from a response to God. And then it's, it's shown in not good ways. In his book, Beatitudes, Paul Turner states, it is per- preposterous to look at mercy as a way of investing. Investing is not bad, necessarily, but it implies that you are going to get something in return for what you do. It implies that if you show mercy, compassion, and forgiveness, you are looking for the recipient to all of a sudden change, to become financially stable like you, or to have a hope life like you. Showing mercy is not about the return. It's about giving, giving freely, often and now. If you're walking into a mercy experience, and you're expecting your investment to turn a life around or make a poor person's life immaculate, you're showing mercy for the wrong reason. Does mercy change lives? Yes, all the time. But if you expect it, you're going to get discouraged. You're going to get burned out. You're going to feel overwhelmed. Jesus said, just said give. He didn't put any stipulations on it. As it says, the only thing we can, should expect from mercy, from showing mercy, is to be shown mercy. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And truly, we have received mercy. Those of us who know the Lord, we have received mercy more than we can ever imagine. And then following that, he says, blessed are the pure in heart. Being able to show mercy unrestrictedly comes from a pure heart, like a pure metal that has no impurities. A pure heart is one that is completely devoted to God. A pure heart doesn't have mixed motives. We can see our motives many times when we experience loss in our lives. Loss either causes us to curse God for the loss or to praise Him for we see His work in the midst of a loss. Those who are pure in heart will see God at work in the presence in their loss and in their pain and they will also know by faith they will see Him with their own eyes in the age to come. Blessed are the pure in heart for they will see God. About 12 years ago, I was diagnosed with melanoma, skin cancer, um, and it was a, a rough year. That year in April, my, my mother passed away from cancer. Uh, three months later, in July, I was diagnosed with melanoma. Uh, and uh, they, because of where they found it on my body, they, they were sure that it was progressing through my body. Uh, they, uh, st- they, they classified as stage four uh, cancer. The, the, the higher the stage, the further it's progressed in your body. Uh, because they usually find on your extremities, they found it underneath my arm so they said we have to treat this quickly so they, we did surgery and then they, they tested to see if they could find it elsewhere they found it nowhere else in my body for which they and we were pleased but they said we feel like it's there somewhere it's dormant you need to take precautions so they prescribed a treatment uh, to boost my immune system called uh, the drug called interferon uh, and I remember the doctor told me I would, I would recommend this but also know that this, you'll be like you have the flu for a year. You will feel sick. You will feel chills, fever, pain, headaches. It'll be like this for a year if you, if you decide to do this because this is a year-long treatment. We prayed over looked at our options. We decided to go with it. So basically it meant that I would give self-inject myself three nights a week, and the next day I would not be able to get out of bed. And so I started this treatment. And, and the thing was, they, they could not say, they had no way to test if it was of you know, helping or not they just said come back in a year we'll do another scan and we'll see if we find anything so i started out you know really wanted to be brave and and, and, and do well through this but uh, after about three or four months it was it was hard i'd take i'd take the shots on sunday tuesday and wednesday and thursday nights monday wednesday and friday uh, many times i couldn't get out of bed i was so sick from the shots uh, and uh it's just like after about three months I can't say I was cursing God, but I was definitely complaining. I was saying, God, this is too hard. I I don't want to do this anymore. And I just began to really lay out my heart. And it it was not only hard for me, but it was hard for my whole family. That was my oldest son, James' senior in high school. I could not participate as I wanted in his senior events because of not feeling well. Connie, my wife, had to take over and do so much more that I couldn't do uh, because of what I was going through. But I remember when I, the day I, just, I reached the end of myself, I said, God, I can't do this anymore. And I remember God, in his grace and sovereignty, just meeting me there. And he said, I just remember my heart just sensing him saying to me, I thought you wanted to spend more time with me. I said, I do, Father. He said, but what about these days when you can't get out of bed? Can You, you want to spend that time with me? And I wanted to say, yeah, but I don't feel well. He said, it doesn't matter. I, if, you're, you're, if you're available and able, I, I'll spend time with you. And I remember thinking, I can't read because my eyes were hurting. I didn't feel well. And God said, just listen to my word. Just plug in a, a device that has my word on it and listen to it. So I began to do that. I began to uh, just listen to his word over and over and over again. I would fall asleep listening to it. I'd wake up listening to it. And the days changed. I began to uh, enjoy this time with the Lord. I didn't enjoy the, the treatment and what I was going through, but I began to enjoy my time with the Lord. And it was like... I began to see what it maybe looks like to have a pure heart, to be devoted to God, just to enjoy this time, to, to see God working in the midst of this pain and this, this hard times, to see God working and enjoy that. And I, I began to look forward to these days, not for the, the medication, but for the time I could spend with my father. And it changed my whole outlook. And I continued on the treatment. I took it about another four or five months. Uh, and they did another scan and found nothing. And up until this day, they found nothing. But I just remember that time The difference it made for me to see God working rather than complaining. And to praise him for this time he was giving me. He said, you can't can't go out and work. You're not well, but you can spend time with me. And I thought, what a difference that made in just how I approached it. And just I felt like for a, a, a moment of time, I saw what it means to be pure in heart. To have my heart completely given to God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. I believe I saw God in that time in my life. And then he goes on and says, Blessed are the peacemakers. Those who are pure in heart want others to know the peace of God as they know. In John chapter 20, we read where Jesus, being the Prince of Peace, the greatest peacemaker of all times, he brought peace to his disciples at a time when they were very troubled. In John chapter 20, verses 19 and 20, I'll read that for us. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked, for the disciples Were for fear of the jews jesus came and stood among them and said to them peace be with you when he had said this he showed them his hands and his side the disciples were glad when they saw the lord this really spoke to me some time ago when i was going through a very difficult time Uh, those of you who know some of our history we were serving in a country overseas and i was told i could not return connie was there i was here trying to figure out which way forward and i was just troubled inside And, and god spoke to me through this as He said, when he came to the disciples at this time, the disciples were fearful of their own lives. They'd seen Jesus get crucified. They were hiding. I can just imagine them being in this dark room, all the windows and doors closed. They're whispering to each other, okay, now what's next? Where do we go? They were so confused and troubled. And in the middle of that, Jesus showed up and he just said, peace be with you. He didn't say, let me explain to you what's happening. Let me explain what's going to happen. He just said, peace be with you. In another translation, it said they were overjoyed. They went from a moment of just being in fear and doubt and to a moment, the next moment, they were just rejoicing in the presence of Jesus. That's what Jesus did. He brings peace to troubled areas of our lives. And because we have peace with God and His peace through His Spirit lives in us, we can go to areas and people who aren't experiencing His peace. People are looking for peace in this world. My brother, who's a contractor, told me a story. He was working on a man's house and because it was an extensive renovation, the man had to move out of his house. And so my brother and his crew was working, and, but the man would return every day to spend a few hours with my brother. My brother first thought he was coming because he thought you know, if he could trust these guys, could they take things out of his house or, or what? But every day he would show up uh, at the end of the workday for about a couple of hours he'd spend with them. And after about a week, the man told my brother, he said, um, he said you know, I come here every day And the reason I do, because you guys have so much peace among you. When you're working together, all the noise and sawing and hammering and beating. He said, but you have peace. I, I, I want that peace. He said, where I work is chaos and it's craziness. But with you guys, I see peace. People are drawn to the peace they see we have in Christ. And when we, as Jesus' disciples, preach the gospel so that others are reconciled to God, they have that peace and we are peacemakers. But peacemaking also goes beyond just reconciling a relationship with God. We want people to reconcile with each other as well. We want to be a part of that. And being a part of that makes us more like Christ. And then finally, he said, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. And blessed are you when people, others revile and persecute you. Persecution is inevitable for those who live righteous lives. In 2 Timothy 3.12, it tells us, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus Will be persecuted. It comes. It will be there. It's a part of life. And this is because in society where we live, the wickedness and individuals around us in the society it unsettles people's conscience. They see that we're not living like everybody else, and they don't know what to do with that. And so they retaliate like they did with Jesus and the prophets to try to silence them, get you out of here. I won't have to deal with this because you're bringing the source of my discomfort and pain. Persecution is an inter- integral part of what it means to be the church. But Christ rewards us in his own way for those who suffer. He said, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sakes, for theirs is the kingdom of God. You know, when I read this scripture, I look back and I think, he said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Then he finishes by saying, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of God. We go from being poor in spirit to being persecuted. He says, all that is blessed. And Paul tells us in Philippians 3.10 that I may know Him. Paul has said, I want to know Christ. I'll know Him in the power of His resurrection and may share in His sufferings, becoming like Him in death. As I reflected on this verse, I wrote the following in my journal. As I thought of this, God showed me that there is no resurrection without suffering. Many times in our culture, we're focused on comfort and so we don't want suffering we avoid suffering even in our churches we avoid suffering we even want to avoid others who are suffering and participating with them but by doing this we see no need of the resurrection or his power by not participating in Christ's sufferings we believe that we can handle whatever we face and so we need have no need of Christ's resurrection power now look at Christ he suffered sure physically in his death on the cross But also in his life, he suffered misunderstandings, constant harassment, false accusations, denial and betrayal by his closest friends, slander, abandonment uh, by his friends, several attempts on his life. This was all a part of Christ's life. And I think, is this the blessed life that I want? Am I willing to to join Christ in this blessed life? He says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Do I want to join him and share in sharing his sufferings that I might be blessed? So what about us today? As we finish and the musicians come, are we experiencing this blessed life? Have you experienced being poor in spirit where you grasp the death, depth of your sinfulness? Have you been there? Have you mourned your sinful state, are you humbly submitting yourself to God, hungering and thirsting? for his righteousness in exchange for your own sinfulness enjoying his mercy through his forgiveness and then showing this mercy to others praising him with a pure heart introducing others to the peace he offers and suffering abuse for his sake is this true of you is this true of me I want to experience the blessed life Christ has but I know that the blessed life that Christ describes here is so different than the blessed life that the world around tells me this is blessed so I thought what would it look like if the world around us said this is blessed and so I wrote some things in closing about blessed in the world's eyes Jesus said blessed are the poor in spirit the world around us would say Blessed are the rich in spirit, for their kingdom is here and now. They would say blessed are those who are happy, for they don't concern themselves with their sin and the pain their sin causes others. They would say blessed are the proud, for they believe they control the earth. They would say blessed are those who are filled with their own self-righteousness, for they believe they are satisfied now. Blessed are those who pursue justice instead of mercy in their own eyes, for they don't need mercy, they believe, even from God. Instead of pure in heart, they would say, blessed are those who are deceptive, for they believe what they get, what they want right now. Instead of being peacemakers, they would say, blessed are those who look out for themselves first, for they don't believe they need anyone but themselves. And then finally, when it comes to suffering and persecution, they would say, blessed are those who live in comfort now, avoiding any suffering, for this life is their heaven. If this morning, hearing this message has touched your heart and you want someone to pray with you and say, I, I, I want to experience the blessed life that Christ has for me. It's kind of frightening to think of uh, living this way, but it's the life that Christ wants for us and has for us. There'll be people here to pray with you. I'm available. Grab someone and pray together uh, because God is calling us to follow him in a way that is so different from the world around us and says, my, my, my children, I want you to be blessed, but this is the way. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your word and what you're teaching us in your word. And Father, I just can imagine being there and hearing these words and just saying, this makes no sense at all. And even today when we read it, we're like, how does this make sense? And yet you said, this is the way of life. So, Father, may we be, as your children say, we want this. We want to be considered blessed in your eyes and not blessed in the world's eyes. Thank you, Father. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.